All right, this is from John 4. So Jesus came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you have now is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can take a seat. All right. Hey, good morning. It's great to see you. Welcome to Trinity Community Church, especially if this is your first time. We are so glad you are here. If you weren't here last week, this is the uh, second series. We started a new series last week called Worshiping Church, where we're looking at what the scriptures say about worship as a way of, of aligning ourselves as a congregation with a biblical view of worship and, and sort of setting a path for our own worship as a congregation. Uh, now, myself personally, I grew up in a charismatic uh, megachurch in Kansas City. I don't know if anybody's heard of the Kansas City Prophets. Anybody familiar with them? Okay, so I give you permission to, to Google that, not now, but after the service, uh, because it was pretty wild. This is 80s and 90s. There were these prophecies that, I mean, some of them were dead on true, unbelievable. A lot of them did not come true, pretty far off. But it was, it was both a wild place to grow up in the church and an incredible one. Because although they did all sorts of stuff and they were well known for prophecy and speaking in tongues and healing and things like that, what, what was most central to this church, the one thing that they were about was worship. 
They, they had teaching, they had ministries, they did all, everything that every other church would do, but there was this, this total focus and alignment that, that the one thing that they wanted to do well was worship. They had this idea that a worship gathering could be a place where you could encounter the living God, that you could actually experience intimacy with God in, in the context of the church all together on a Sunday morning. And it sort of laid a foundation for me that a local church can get a lot of things wrong but if the people love God and they love to sing His praises and, and enter into His presence with thanksgiving, it's going to be all right. In the same way, a church can get everything right in terms of the, the right doctrines and they've got all the right programs, they say and do all the right things. And yet if people's hearts are far from God and the, the worship is just kind of dry and lifeless, that's, for me, that's, that's just not going to do it. And so, some of you grew up in a similar tradition. This is often called the low church tradition, as opposed to the high church tradition. And in the high church tradition, this would be a Catholic, Episcopal, Lutheran church. There are, there are robes, there are hymns, you know, you have a hardback hymnal in front of you. Typically, some pretty long services where you're standing and kneeling and the kneeling and standing. That's the high church tradition, and I know some of you grew up in that space. Others like me grew up in the, the low church tradition with contemporary music, with blue jeans, with, you know, the, the lyrics are projected up onto the screen and maybe there's like a mountain in the background behind the lyrics. And it's like, is that an eagle? Man, God is so good. And so maybe you didn't grow up in either of those. You didn't grow up in the church at all. And you're like, I'm so thankful that I didn't grow up in one of those environments. But throughout the end of the last century, there were these, these conversations within Christianity. And I say conversations because that's the best way to put it. They were more like debates or arguments or what we know as the worship wars. Literally, people were arguing, were fighting over worship styles, traditional versus contemporary. So congregations split over how to sing songs and what kinds to sing. An entire denomination split over these worship wars. And so I, I, I share all this as a sort of background to show that worship is, is often something that can divide people in the church. And it's not anything new. It goes back several decades. It actually goes back thousands of years. We actually see it here in John 4. This Samaritan woman is, is by the well, and Jesus comes up and, and engages her. And, and he sort of, you know, puts his finger on, on a soft spot. I mean, just right to the core of her hurt, who she is. And so she immediately tries to change the subject. And she asks about worship. Should we be worshiping here or worshiping over there? Even then, there were worship wars going on. But Jesus is not going to get caught up in any of it. And he goes right to the heart. He says in verse 23, Yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. And so today from John 4, I want to look at these three things. I want to first look at why God seeks worshipers. Second, what kind of worship God seeks. And then third, what this means for us at Trinity. So why God is seeking worshipers, what kind of worship God seeks, and then what this means for us. 
So let's get back into the story. Jesus is in the middle of this long journey. This is a, a day or several days long walk through Samaria. He sits down in the heat of the day. His disciples are going to, to town to get food. And then he engages this woman in conversation. Now, this is noteworthy for several reasons. First of all, she's a Samaritan and, and he's a Jew, which the text says is, is not a normal conversation. They do not associate with one another. And in particular, it's, it's the Jews that will not associate with the Samaritans. Now, Samaria is right in the middle of Israel. It's sort of you know, right in the heart. And so you would have to go around it to get up to Galilee where Jesus was from. And so Jews would often travel around Samaria just so they didn't have to go through it. It's, it's maybe a contemporary example might be like how I, if I'm going to Colorado, I go up to Iowa and then over to Nebraska and then to Wyoming and then I come back down. You know, it's nothing personal. I just refuse to breathe Kansas air. It's all it is. So it's a little bit like that. They would go all the way around Samaria just to avoid interaction with those people, right? Now, the second thing that stands out is that Jesus is a man, and, and this is a woman, and so that was not a, a normal one-on-one -on -one conversation for two strangers in that culture. And then third, this is a woman with a, a past of sexual sin. And so right off the bat, she already has three strikes against her, and nonetheless, Jesus engages, and he, and he changes her life. See, she has been, as, as Jesus points out, she has had five husbands, and the man that he is, she is with now is not her husband. Jesus discerns this, and, and really he goes to the core of her being. I think we can, we can assume that, that for this woman, relationships have been at the core of who she is. She's been trying to, to find herself through using her body and using sex, trying to figure out how to fill the void that's in her heart. She's been doing it over and over and over again. And she's still empty. She's still longing. She's still thirsty. She's still dissatisfied. And so Jesus approaches and, and speaks directly to the emptiness of her heart. Now, we're, we're looking at this passage primarily in terms of worship. And so look at verse 23. Jesus says, true worshipers. These are the kind of worshipers that the Father seeks. And so it's amazing that Jesus would, would approach this woman who has the three strikes against her and begin to describe to her what kind of worshipers the Father is seeking. And I want you to sit with that for a moment, that God is seeking worshipers. He is searching, he is looking, he is, he is straining, trying to find those who will worship him as he is. He's not standing by idly, he's not remaining far off until someone gets his attention. He's not looking for a certain type of person that fits the mold. But in the same way that Jesus takes the initiative with this woman, God is seeking every one of us. Regardless of our background, he is seeking worshipers. Now, this encounter in John 4, it comes right after an encounter with a man named Nicodemus in John 3. And, and the Gospel writer put these two passages back to back as a way of showing us something about the life and ministry and heart of Jesus. It's, it's a really strong contrast. And so Nicodemus was highly educated, whereas this Samaritan woman was uneducated. 
Nicodemus was a powerful leader in the community, and this woman would have been considered a nobody. Nicodemus was fully Jewish, orthodox. He was a good person. And this woman was Samaritan, despised, adulterous. And so the point is that God is seeking worshipers. He's searching both high and low. He's looking for both women and men. He's looking for upper class, middle class, lower class, educated, uneducated. Whoever you are, God is seeking and searching you out that you might be a worshiper of Him. Now, I don't know if that strikes you as, as a little bit odd. Sometimes we can, we can have this thought, well, well, why is God so desirous that we would be worshiping Him? I mean, the essence of, of pride in, in mankind is when somebody is, is desperate for attention, right? When somebody needs you to notice them and, and praise them. And so is, is God being self-absorbed when He's asking for us, longing for us to worship Him? If you know of C.S. Lewis, he was a writer in the past century. And he wrote in his Reflections on the Psalms that this was actually his most life-changing discovery that God was committed to getting people to worship Him. And the reason for that was because he struggled for years and years with this idea that, in his words, God seemed like an egomaniac to be demanding people to worship Him. So he wrote, as he, as he began to, to understand this from a different way, he asked, what if God was, was not seeking worshipers? If God instead is more devoted to us than He is to Himself or to His own glory... That would make him man-centered. That would make him needy. That would make him desperate for our approval. And instead, he says, in the central act of our own worship, it is God who gives and we who receive. So think about that. Even as you're, you're standing, when you're with your church and you're standing and you're singing the praises of God, C.S. Lewis says, even in that moment, it's God who's giving and we who are receiving. He goes on to say, all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. In other words, whenever you are enjoying something in life, it is your impulse to want to, to speak the glories of that thing or to share that with somebody else. And so you can think about maybe a time that you got a job or a promotion, and as soon as you walked out of the building, you were ready to make a phone call or text somebody that, that it came through, that you got it. You can't help but share that great thing. Anybody that's ever have a, had, a, had a child, I mean, within almost moments of this magical moment, it's like they want to send out pictures. They want to say, he's here, she's here, here's how it went. You know, there's this old joke about the vegan, the CrossFit guy, and the Ivy League grad that walked into the bar. You say, how do you know that's what they were because they told everybody within 30 seconds? It's like whatever it is to us that's so important, it just comes pouring out of us, right? Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so C.S. Lewis realized how central this was. And he says, we, we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. So in other words, we, we haven't really enjoyed something until we've actually shared that enjoyment with other people. It's not complete until we go on sharing it or, or praising it to somebody else. There's a, th a theologian named Sam Storms who says the reason God seeks worshipers is this. He says, if your satisfaction in God is incomplete until expressed in praise of Him, 
with himself, not his gifts or his blessings, then God's effort to elicit your worship is the most loving thing he could possibly do. In other words, if the thing that is best for us as human beings made in his image is to to know him and worship him and praise him, then for God to seek worshipers is the most loving thing he could do. There's nothing better than God can give us but himself. And if he truly gives himself, we will overflow in praise. Now, I think I said this last week, but I was also sick and on antibiotics, so I'm not 100% sure, but I could say it every week. If you're here, God is seeking you. If you're here in this moment, it's because God is pursuing you. He is inviting you. He is drawing you to himself. No matter if you're a a non-Christian, if you're exploring Christianity, if you're new to Christ, if you're a, a lifelong believer, if you're in this moment, God is seeking you pursuing you. He's been searching high and low, and he's, he's been working on your heart, cultivating the, the soil of your heart. You might be an even more full worshiper of him. And so he's saying, come to me, come and drink, seek my face. I have living water. I can satisfy the, the deepest needs of your souls. Everything you've been looking for is here in me. And at every moment of every day, God is seeking us and our worship that we might have the one thing that is best for us. Now, the image of water emphasizes this too. In the Old Testament especially, water is a symbol of salvation and fellowship. So one of my favorite Psalms, Psalm 46, it says, There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. In Isaiah 12, 3, this verse, we often read it in our our very first church planning meetings. It says, with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And what a promise. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. In Isaiah 44, God says, I will pour my water on the thirsty land. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessings upon your descendants. And it's that prophecy from Isaiah 44 that is being fulfilled in this very moment between Jesus and the Samaritan woman. God had promised to send living water, and now Jesus is here. And he says, the time has come. Come and and drink, come and receive. And in Isaiah 44, there's a connection between water and spirit, and Jesus does the same thing in John 8. He says, whoever believes in me, Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then in the same verse, John notes that he said this about the Holy Spirit. And so God is seeking worshipers. He's pursuing you. He desires you to praise him because it's the best thing for us. Now, the second thing is what kind of worship God seeks. Verse 21, Jesus replied, believe me. A time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is Spirit, and His worshipers must worship in the Spirit and in truth. 
Now again, notice that Jesus will not get caught up in the worship wars. The question is, should we worship here on this mountain in Samaria, or should we go down to Jerusalem? What is the right place of worship? Should we stay true to the old liturgical formal worship, or should we embrace the new contemporary style? And Jesus just goes right to the heart. And he says, a time is coming and is now here. And I hope you see how how important and how magnificent that is that he says a time is coming. In fact, it's already here. Me, Me standing here, Jesus is saying, is the fulfillment of all these prophecies from the Old Testament. He's saying the hour has come when authentic worship is possible. So there's worship throughout all the Old Testament. There are sacrifices. There's the tent of meeting. There's the temple. People are are sacrificing animals. They're singing songs that, that we have in the Psalms today. There was worship all over the Old Testament. And yet Jesus says, true and living worship. It's now possible in this moment because I am here. The focus of our worship should be on Jesus Christ. He's saying what matters most is not where you worship, the style of your worship, but who you worship, why you worship. And see also that the only bit of information that Jesus gives on on how to worship, it's really just this one phrase. He He says it twice, but true worshipers will worship in the Spirit and in truth. And that means that our worship of God is is true and pleasing to God when it's both full of truth and full of the Holy Spirit. Now, let's think about that for a moment. What would would worship full of truth be? I think of of worshiping in truth as being worship that that follows the pattern of the Scripture, that that knows God as He is, as He's revealed Himself. Worship that's, that's grounded in the reality of who God is, of who we are, of, of the nature of things in the world, our need for salvation, our need for Christ, our need of the Holy Spirit. Worship in truth is not, it's not just um, manipulation of emotions through music and, and lights and fog. No, it's grounded in reality. It's a true praising of the living God. It's centered on on exalting Christ for who He really is. It refuses all the cheap substitutes that are offered to us in life. Now this is why I love the the gospel-centered movement that we are a part of, which elevates truth and which which holds to the beauty and the power of the Scriptures, which maintains a a style of worship that that is connected to the style of worship described in the Old Testament and New Testament. And we follow a liturgy here at Trinity that's been tested and approved for 2,000 years. A call to worship where we acknowledge that God is seeking worshipers. We are here because He has sought us and drawn Him to Himself. We use a confession of sin every week to recognize that He's drawing us to Himself not because of our own goodness, not because we pulled it together this week, not because we were better than our neighbors, but sheerly out of grace. So we confess our sins. We bring ourselves to Him in in truth. And then we hear the assurance of pardon spoken over us. But God, rich in mercy, wiped away our sins. Right? Romans 8.1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
right? I got 99 problems, but Romans 8.1. I love it. You can use that. It's not mine. The assurance of pardon washes over us. You're forgiven. You have peace with God. You have peace with one another. Enjoy the communion. Enjoy the fellowship. Enjoy the life of the Trinity. And so that's worship full of truth. But what is worship full of the Spirit? We just saw in Ephesians 6 a couple weeks ago that Paul invites us, commands us to worship in the Spirit. In Colossians 3.3, he also says that we're to worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ and put no confidence in the flesh. And so one of the roles of the Holy Spirit is, is to awaken us to Christ. To, to put the spotlight on Jesus Christ, to, to show Him for who He really is and all of His glory and majesty, the Holy Spirit warms our hearts to that reality. The Holy Spirit awakens us to the glory of God, to, to who we really are. It's not truth alone that does that, but it's truth made alive by the Holy Spirit. He stokes the flames of our passion for God. He takes our, our weak feelings about God and He, he cranks up the volume. He takes these tiny little affections or desires that we have for God and he, he magnifies them. He increases them. And so worship in the Spirit won't be content with any kind of just purely formulaic worship. It could be the best worship ever, but if your heart is disconnected from it, if you're not one with God, if you don't have the Holy Spirit, it's not going to transform you. And so I think here of my own background in, in the Spirit-filled movement. As I often say, the, the heart of the charismatic church, it's not prophecy and tongues or anything else. The heart of it is worship and prayer. It's the belief that God is here, that He is with us, that He's drawing us to Himself, and that we can seek Him and praise Him and, and even experience this intimacy with Him together. And so if we look across our country right now, there are two growing movements of Christianity. There's really only two growing Christian movements in our country. And the first one is, is what we call a Reformed or Gospel-centered movement, which is heavily centered on truth. And the second one is a Spirit-filled and charismatic movement, which is largely centered on the role of the Holy Spirit. And here at, at, at Trinity, our desire, Pastor Casey and I with our leadership team, we don't want to separate these two things. And we find ourselves in, in the Reformed movement, and yet we want to be full of the Holy Spirit. We don't want to minimize or diminish anything that the Spirit of God wants to do in us. And we think by trying to, to draw off the, the best of both of these traditions that we can guard ourselves against some of the errors of each one if they get disconnected from the other side. And it's not anything new. It's right here in John 4. Worship in the Spirit and in truth. Now, already we're getting to the third point. That's what this means for us today. Subtitle, Cultivating a Gospel-Centered, Spirit-Filled Worship Culture. At least that's how I have it in my notes if you're a note-taker. If you've been around here for a bit, you know that we don't want to be an either-or church. We want to be a both-and church. We don't want to be a church that tries to, to solve all the problems, but rather we want to be a church that can manage tensions. We need to know the difference between a problem that needs to be solved and a tension that needs to be managed or held together. 
And so we recognize that a church that embraces worship in truth only, but not worship in spirit, there's a risk of us becoming dry, formulaic, hyper-intellectual, even elitist. And yet a church that embraces worship in the spirit only, and it's disconnected from truth, we could become hyper-emotional, disorderly, even misleading. And so in order to, to worship in the Spirit and in truth, I think there's a few different tensions that we need to manage together. The first tension is transcendence and intimacy. I don't know if you've ever thought about church architecture much. I, I love church architecture. I love the, the historic old cathedrals of Christianity. I love the style of Eastern Orthodox and, and African or Ethiopian Orthodox churches. There's something beautiful about entering a, a cathedral with, with vaulted ceilings and, and curved roof beams, which, which are supposed to draw us to the, to the Exodus or to Noah's Ark. There are themes that are, are rich. The, the stained glass windows tell stories of redemption in the Scriptures. There's a, a pipe organ that's like, I mean, it's like the original subwoofer. You know, we heard a guy go by with his Honda Civic or whatever it was. It was like during prayer time. No, man, the pipe organ was like, that will shake the neighborhood. And I love the, like, just the beauty and, and the, the tradition that's there because the desire behind it is, is an experience of transcendence. To come into a place and have your, your eyes lifted up to, to realize that so often we're consumed by these small earthly things, but when you step into the house of God, you feel for a moment this sense of awe and glory and transcendence, and I love that. And yet at the same time, I, I love the intimacy of, of worshiping with the church. You know, we as a church, obviously, we don't meet in a cathedral. We don't have our own church building. We meet in a rented space. We'll be meeting in a school again in August. And that gives us a chance to, to really emphasize the intimacy that we have in Christianity. Intimacy not only with God, but with one another. I mean, we started in a living room for six, seven months, just met in a living room for Bible study and prayer. And a lot of churches do this intentionally as well. I mean, lower ceilings, kind of smaller space. There's no big stage to elevate the, you know, the priest or the leader. It's about what God is doing among us together. And so we have transcendence and we have intimacy and we don't have to choose one or the other, but we can try to manage these two wonderful things as a tension. Now the second thing is simplicity and depth. We try to be a, a simple church in how we're organized. We do Sunday gatherings, we do community groups, and sometimes we do a few other things. I mean, if you look at the back of the bulletin, there's like one thing right now, you know, and some of that's because it's summer. But the simplicity of our organization as a church, it's not because we're small. It's not because we're young. It's very intentional. It's because we don't want to overschedule a, a people in a culture that are already far overscheduled, right? I mean, that goes for every one of us. And so instead, we want to create space for relationships, for you to get together with people in your groups, to, to do life together with one another. And yet at the same time, that simplicity, we hope, enables depth. We hope it, it enables a depth of teaching, of community, of, of service beyond ourselves. We want to hold together simplicity and depth. Now third, reverence and celebration. How do we hold together reverence and celebration as a church? 
the first Sunday of the year, I, I preached from 2 Samuel 6, and it's one of my, my favorite scenes in the Bible. It's where, where King David is, is calling for the Ark of the Covenant to be brought to Jerusalem. You know, the Ark is this, this magnificent uh, artifact that, that represents the very presence of God for Israel, and, and in a battle it was stolen, and now they've brought it back to the edges of Israel. And David says we need to bring it into Jerusalem, into the temple where it belongs. And yet the first time they try to move it, a priest presumptuously reaches out his hand to, to steady it, and immediately he's struck down dead. And so David hits pause, and they, they think, and they reflect, and they come up with a plan that, that represents reverence for the presence of God. And they follow the, the laws that had been laid out far in advance, and they carried it on poles. But it's said that every six steps, they set it down, and they sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf every six steps. And they held a worship service. And so could you imagine doing this six steps at a time, and then you set it down, and there's barbecue, and there's singing, and there's prayer, and there's scripture, and then you pick it up and take six more steps, and you do it all again. I did the math on it back in January, and it would have taken, I think, 1,200 worship services to do the three-mile distance of the journey. And it says when they finally reached the city, the text says David was leaping and dancing before the Lord with all his might. I mean, it's the most inefficient like church activity ever, right? I mean, they could have done it so much quicker, and that's what they tried the first time. But David, this man after God's own heart, for him, no, no amount of sacrifices was too high. No amount of time was, was unworth it. No amount of, of praising God was too over the top for him. And so months, if not years, he is sustained in his worship of God as they are moving and they have one last big service in Jerusalem. And I think this shows us that true worship brings together both, both reverence and celebration. That you have this reverent procession that, that follows all of God's instructions obediently, but does so from the heart with, with joy, with gladness, overflowing in praise of God. And the fourth and final tension to hold together. I know you expected three, that's why I'm doing four. Only had two points last week. I saved those minutes. Don't forget that. Got minutes for, not this week, it's another one. Got 10 minutes for later. All right. Form and fire. These are two words that we used often in our revival series last year. We looked at revivals in the scriptures, both Old and New Testaments. We looked at revivals in history. And we defined, defined revival as, as an extraordinary intensification of a very normal, ordinary process. In other words, an extraordinary intensification of what God is already doing ordinarily. So, so worship and, and prayer and the, the preaching of the word and service to the community, evangelism, all of that gets, gets multiplied exponentially beyond any human explanation in revival. And there are two types of revivals that have happened throughout history. Some are characterized by fire and some by form. Now, those that are characterized by fire are, are based around release when the Spirit comes. This is probably what you think of as revival historically, and unless you think of like the kind of big tent revival if you're from that background. 
but in the release type of, of fire revivals, people are, are just wiped out by their sin. They're you know, slain in the Spirit. The, the Holy Spirit moves like a, a nuclear bomb and things just change overnight. The other type of revival historically is a revival of form, meaning that it's more of a, a slow-burning and, and slow-moving revival, but it's a revival nonetheless where people are coming to faith, where new churches are being started, even you know, structures and institutions are, are put up so that the revival might be sustained for years. And then every now and again in church history, God grants a revival that's both form and fire. A revival where the Spirit of God descends in a way that people are just consumed with a passion for God and a passion for the Gospel and Christ. And yet they develop the forms to sustain that renewal. They read their Bibles. They, they share their faith. They build community. They plant churches. And when these two things come together, it's, it's the most incredible season of growth that a church can experience. And it typically happens far more than in one single church. And so our prayer as a church is not merely that Trinity would experience ordinary renewal or extraordinary revival if God chooses it, but instead that our whole city, our whole region, our whole state would experience renewal and revival. That it would be far bigger than any one local church could contain. That it would burn like fire and come in a sustainable form. Now this renewal, it's a work of God that we can't generate, but we can actively resist it. We can, we can sort of prevent renewal from happening in our midst. And we do that by either losing the truth or losing the Spirit. By losing the centrality of the Word of God and the power of His truth, or by losing the, the reality of relationship with God and communion with God, of fullness in the Holy Spirit. And so our role in all of this is to worship in the Spirit and in the truth. Now to finish up, verse 25 and 26. It says, The woman said, I know that the Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. And Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. And so we recognize that, that a time has come now where Jesus has arrived I mean, if ever there was a demonstration that God is seeking worshipers, it's that He sent His own Son into the world for us. Now, God wouldn't seek and, and search for worshipers and then not make a way for us to actually come into His presence and worship Him. And so He sent His only Son to live the life that we could never live and then to die the death in our place, the once-for-all sacrificial offering that makes all of our worship possible. God makes a way through Jesus. And so now He can offer this true and living water to us where we take and drink. He calls Himself the, the bread of life, but where we take and eat. And this God who is eternal, who is all-powerful, who needs absolutely nothing, He is seeking worshipers. And will we worship Him in spirit and in truth? Let's pray.